It's the TEH Podcast, episode number 129. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig from MacMost.com. So this week, I'm going to try and do the impossible. <laughs> Explain Bitcoin. I don't think anybody ever has. <laughs> I don't think I'm anybody ever sure has. I'm sure anybody either. knows what it is. Um, Actually, what I should say is the impossible would be to explain it. I'm just going to take a whack at it. Um, to be clear, uh, I don't in any way, shape, or form profess to be an expert in the technology. Um, it's I just find it incredibly fascinating, not necessarily for all the uh, uh, societal changes that some people seem to imply it's going to bring, but rather the technology, right? The stuff that this podcast is all about. I'm enthusiastic about the technology that underlies uh, Bitcoin and some of the other related things that it seems to have spawned. Now, um, jumping just ahead a little bit a second, one of the things that that caused this to get back on my radar, because I've actually written a little bit about uh, uh, Bitcoin or at least uh, an aspect of it in the past, but one thing that brought it on the radar again is something called a non-fungible token or NFT, mm -hmm. which I think you were saying, Gary, you were hearing about what more publicly? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I've been hearing about it, you know, online, of course, right. you know, all these trends, but then I actually was shocked that they mentioned it and had a little segment on it on uh, CNBC uh, during their morning show. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's uh, you know you know it's it, that's all you know it hits the mainstream yeah it, or at least the mainstream for financial things when right. they mention on CNBC right the the concept certainly has made its appearance in a bunch of random places um, and to be honest I'm not sure that the people that are um, uh, all hyped about it because there's a there is such a tremendous amount of hype um, really understand what it is either but. Not to mm. say that it isn't cool and that it isn't interesting technology that could be used for something. So like I said, I'm not necessarily um, advocating for societal change or, or do I necessarily believe that there'll be these massive changes because of the technology or at least the massive changes that some people are currently predicting, like you know, global digital currency or this new way of selling unique digital goods. But rather, uh, I do think that there are some some opportunities here that we probably don't even realize today where the underlying technology of Bitcoin, uh, the blockchain, and uh, and even NFTs uh, could have uh, some interesting ramifications over the uh, coming years and decades. So um, <laughs> there's we, of course, need to, to start somewhere, and we really do need to define a few terms. This is a really, really big, meaty topic, and I don't know that we'll get to all of it in this episode, but if we don't, we'll certainly uh, carry on the interesting parts uh, at some point in the future. But so what we're doing, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start talking about uh, blockchain. Hmm. Blockchain uh, is <laughs> the obviously, what is a blockchain? Well, it's a chain of blocks. That's not helpful. The issue is that blockchain, oh, the other thing of course, is that there are people that absolutely believe that the blockchain is the answer to everything without really mm -hmm. even knowing what it is. They, it's like, it's like this, this checkbox that needs to be in every new product, 
right? Because it's the new marketing thing. Everybody says uh -huh. blockchain is wonderful. If you release a new service that doesn't use blockchain, you're missing out on something. Uh, that's whether it's the right solution for your problem is not obvious ever, uh, <laughs> but it is an interesting solution for some problems, like for example, digital currency. So it is in fact a chain of blocks. When we say a block, we've got literally like 4K of data or something like that. It's on the order of about maybe four to 10,000 bytes, literal digital bytes of data. And that's all it really is. Data, ones and zeros. They are uh, linked into a chain, meaning that each block of data has a reference to the block that is in front of it. And it all starts with block zero, the, the, what they call the, the origin block for any specific blockchain. Uh, uh, block, or I'm sorry, Bitcoin's origin block started, uh, was created in 2009. And every block that is currently being added to the Bitcoin blockchain eventually points back to that. You walk the entire list of blocks and you'll eventually end up at block zero. I think they're up in well over half a million blocks on the blockchain right now. So it is just a block of data. It is distributed. So it's not like there's one reference place for this data. That's one of the things that truly distinguishes it from some of the other uh, methods we might use to manage data where money is one of the more obvious examples, uh, rather than there being one central place that is the canonical reference copy of the blockchain, the blockchain is instead maintained as several thousand different copies on, excuse me, several thousand identical copies on several thousand different servers who are actually running the software that is the Bitcoin blockchain. Mm -hmm. Whenever something is added to the blockchain, a copy is distributed to all of those thousand different servers. Uh, there are rules about how that happens, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But the, the bottom line is that one of its strengths, one of the things that excites some people and worries others, is that the blockchain is... Um, is there is no central place to go to. It's under nobody's control. That means that if country A wants to you know, stop using or take down servers that are currently implementing the blockchain, all of these other thousand or 2000 servers are redundant. So the blockchain never goes away. It just, it's always there. There is no one policing it other than the algorithms in the software, which of course are public and there are well-defined protocols for making changes. It doesn't happen very often anymore, but the bottom line is that there is no central authority uh, other than the blockchain itself. That's the most interesting thing for me about blockchain, whether it's Bitcoin or other things we're going to talk about is, uh, you know, you know, when people ask me about it, I don't know much about it. You know, way more than me about all this stuff. But the one thing I do know is it's decentralized. Mm -hmm. So when you have a U.S. dollar, right, it all goes back to the U.S. Treasury. Mm -hmm. um, and if you have, you know, Swiss francs or British pounds or Japanese yen, there's a 
you know, central authority for every one of those pieces of currency. But there is no country that owns Bitcoin or any of the other cryptocurrencies. And when we talk about non-fungible tokens, you know, I see the same thing. You know, the you have copyrights. Copyrights are a government thing. There's a US copyright office. Right. Right. You know, you have a register with that, but if you're in another country, that doesn't mean much. It's the copyright office of that country. But blockchain says, hey, no country and no company owns this even. It is completely decentralized. This is a thing that exists without central authority. So right. anyway. Right. The, to the extent there is authority, it is in fact the rules that are codified mm -hmm. in the software running on all of these different servers. Um, and like I said, there are uh, you know, mechanisms in place to make changes to the algorithms. Uh, but for the most part, that is a... Uh, it's a consensus model, right? Everybody across all thousand of those servers mm -hmm. has to more or less agree as to what changes are going to happen and then implement those changes. But it is not an individual saying, you know, you know, just saying, okay, fine. You know, blockchain is worth X today, or this is how we're going to distribute it, or I want five, right? You you have to you know use the software the way it was designed and implemented um, in order to do anything with blockchain. And that means there's very, very little control. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the, the topics or one of the concepts that people worry about a lot when they hear that uh, Bitcoin, as our example, is simply data, uh, doesn't that mean that somebody could hack it? And Bitcoin specifically, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing when you think about it. It's been around now for 12 years. Like I said, there's well over half a million blocks containing, you know, millions and millions of transactions that uh, there has not been a successful attack on Bitcoin at all. One of the approaches or one of the things that is fundamental to keeping uh, Bitcoin secure is what's called a cryptographic hash. You'll be hearing a lot about cryptography in general, but we tend to go into one of either of three different ways with cryptography. The cryptographic hash, asymmetric encryption, and symmetric encryption. The hash is the one that I want to talk about right now. We'll talk about the others in a second. But when you've got a hash, what that really means is you've taken one of these blocks of data and you calculate using that data a number. The number looks incredibly random because it's supposed to look really random. If anything changes even by a little bit in the data, that cryptographic hash changes a lot. So you can get this hash from your data. And if the data changes even the tiniest bit, the cryptographic hash will change actually quite a bit. The hashes are designed to change dramatically for even the smallest little change in the data. The other important characteristic of a cryptographic hash is that it's one way. In other words, you can get the hash from the data, but you cannot get the data back from the hash. That's one of the reasons that passwords are generally stored as hashes. That way, even if somebody does break into a database and gets a list of hashes, they don't have the list of passwords because they can't go backwards. The third thing that is critical about hashes is that it is impossible to target a specific hash value. 
Now, we'll come. that's going to turn out to be really, really important in just a moment. But the idea is that one of the ways you might consider faking data is to maybe make a change to your data and then do something to, quote unquote, fix the hash so it looks like something hasn't changed. That's not possible. The hash for the data will be different, and there is no way to target your data to a specific value. With one exception, and that is, of course, by changing the data. You can target a specific value by changing the data in the hash. And that's actually what's at the core of what's referred to as mining. When a block is to be added to the Bitcoin or any uh, blockchain uh, chain, what happens is a number of, like many thousands of different computers all try to calculate a hash on that block of data that has to meet certain characteristics. The way I characterize it, I've got a, an article on this one. It's called, How Does Bitcoin Mining Work? The way I characterize this, and it is literally gaming theory, is that it's a game. The over gross oversimplification would be if I were to say, I picked a number between one and 100, you have to guess it. If you guess it correctly, I'll give you a dollar. Now, if you guess it too easily, I might say, okay, you know what? We're going to change the rules. We're going to say between one and a thousand. So it's 10 times harder to guess the number that I'm thinking of. And if it's still too easy, I'll say between one and 10,000. And so on. You get the idea that if it if it continues to be too easy, if you're able to get the answer too quickly, then I will increase the range over which you need to be guessing to make it harder for you to get the answer right. In blockchain, what that means is that the hash for a block needs to meet certain criteria. Uh, technically, it needs to be less than a certain value, a certain numerical value. That value is defined by the protocol, actually, by the block, by the Bitcoin protocol, to change at certain times. They actually adjust it so as to attempt to maintain a guess rate, a successful guess rate of about once every 10 minutes. What's happening? is that each of these machines out there that are attempting to find this specific hash value, there's no way to, to, to algorithmically figure out what the value should be other than trying all possible values. So essentially what's happening is all these mining machines are taking that block and they're calculating this hash over and over and over again. And what they're doing is they're changing one specific piece of the data called a nonce that is intended for this exact purpose. They set it to zero, they calculate the hash. It doesn't meet the criteria. They set it to one, they calculate the hash. It doesn't meet the criteria. They set it to two. They calculate the hash. It doesn't meet the criteria and so on and so on. And we're talking about you know, millions and billions of attempts to calculate the hash. And did I mention hashes are intentionally computationally difficult, which means they take time. So what ends up happening is that Oh, and finally, the final piece of the puzzle, why would anybody want to mine? Well, remember when I gave you a dollar for the correct number between my one and a hundred or one and a thousand, the mining machine 
that gets the hash that meets the criteria first is awarded Bitcoin. As currently, I think it's like six and a quarter Bitcoin for getting it right. And the last I looked, the value of a Bitcoin is something like $50,000. It's probably higher by now. Um, We'll talk about volatility sometime. But the bottom line is that there is this incredible incentive to mine Bitcoin. Now, the reason that mining exists is that it is how Bitcoin maintains its, I want to say objectivity or accuracy. Or that What you're ending up with is you've got all of these mining machines all running this calculation to make sure that the block is what it's supposed to be. They're coming up with this hash value. As soon as somebody gets it right, everybody who's trying to guess, these thousands of machines that are trying to guess the number, they're now told the number and they then get to confirm that it is in fact the correct number, that it does in fact meet the criteria. This confirms that nobody's screwed around with with the data. Nobody's tried to do something that they shouldn't be doing. It's the same data everybody got that they were all calculating on and that they all now agree, yep, that machine over there got the right number. That's now the correct block to be added to the blockchain and we can move on. Hmm. It's with that kind of an incentive, that's why you end up with server farms that are uh, basically just you know thousands of high-end servers who are doing nothing more than what I just described. They're running, uh, the the hash that happens to be used is the uh, SHA-256 algorithm. Um, And that's like their life. They spend 99.9% of their time just calculating that that hash over and over and over again. Uh, It's CPU intensive, uh, which means it uses a lot of electricity, generates a lot of heat. This is why server farms try to park themselves where the electricity is cheap. Um, And it's one of the reasons you see these random stories that suddenly claim, you know, Bitcoin is uh, using more electricity than Argentina or, you know, whatever random country mm. they happen to choose for comparison. Uh, that may or may not be true. Uh, it's it's certainly a lot. Um, it also affects you and I in a fairly indirect way in that malware uh, often will deploy a Bitcoin uh, or a blockchain miner on your machine so as to use your CPU, uh, you know, while, since it's available while it's not doing something else. Now, certainly one really powerful machine uh, could theoretically be the fastest machine. In practice, farms of machines are all trying. And where I started out, um, you know, just counting from zero to one to two to three, changing that nonce each time to make a different uh, uh, hash value. The, the, the reality is that in a server farm, you, know, you start at zero, you start at a thousand, you start at 2000, that kind of a thing. So they're all trying these different values of nonces so that they can stand a chance of somebody in that farm being the recipient of uh, the awarded Bitcoin. But the same thing is true if you've got enough infected machines. Even if you've got an underpowered machine, there's a chance that it could be the one, um, in which case the malware author gets rewarded the uh, the Bitcoin which, like mm. I said, is a fairly substantial uh, chunk of money. Mm. So with that going on, that's what kind of confirms or ensures the integrity of the Bitcoin, of, the, of a blockchain. 
every block points to every previous block and every block is itself uh, uh, has a hash value that is easily confirmed to be the correct one, which means that you can't go back and make a random change to a transaction without detection. And in fact, if that were to happen, not only does the, the, the block where the change occurred become invalid, because of the way the information is stored, every block after it becomes invalid, which means that in order to successfully make a change to a block, you have to not only recalculate a hash for that particular block, which as we've seen is in a, uh, a very CPU intensive calculation, but you have to do it for every block that came thereafter especially when there's a new block being added every 10 minutes, it's extremely unlikely that you would be able to do that anywhere uh, in the amount of time that you have available to you. Now, there is a concept of what's called a 51% attack. And I, it's not happened to Bitcoin. I saw mention of it somewhere happening to the Ethereum blockchain, which I thought was kind of interesting. You'll hear about Ethereum uh, as we move on in this stuff too. It's, it's probably the second most popular blockchain, but not necessarily for cryptocurrency. What happens is you've got all of these miners distributed in data centers across the planet, everywhere. The only way to actually make a fraudulent or make a change to an existing block would be to have 51% of the miners all agree that that's the right thing to do. And the only way they would do that is if those 51% or more, of course, were somehow compromised in the same way so as to allow that malicious change to happen. Like I said, because there are so many miners across so many different jurisdictions and in so many different places, there's no feasible way to do that and certainly no feasible way to do that in the allotted time uh, uh, for any block that's past a certain point in history. Yeah, I. Uh, mm, this part bothers me a bit. Not because I disagree with the basic premise. Sure. I mean, the whole idea of, you know, you have to get more than half uh, of all the machines involved to be tricked. Um, it's just that, you know, taking Bitcoin as an example, uh, when Bitcoin was $100 per Bitcoin, um, it just seemed like, well, that's, that's never going to happen. Now that it's, you know, what is $40,000, $50,000 of Bitcoin, um, it may still not be feasible to try to pull off the mm -hmm. heist of the century to, mm -hmm. you know, do it. But it's starting to, you know, I mean, if it's 50,000, why could it at some point in the future be half a million dollars per Bitcoin? Right. And when it gets to insane numbers like that, which didn't seem possible in the past, but now do, then you start to think, well, wouldn't it be worth it for a big organization of people or country or whatever to perhaps uh, attempt a massive fraud you know, of I don't know. It it seems to me that it, it, it's it's troublesome. It's certainly troublesome, and like I said, my understanding is it's actually happened on other blockchains. Yeah. But um, this is one of the reasons that um, Bitcoin really benefits from its success 
because there are so many miners out there. Basically, someone, again, would have to either hijack 51% of the miners or basically provide a new set of 51 that, that ends up being 51% of the miners uh, that all then make this same malicious change at exactly the same time. Um, mm. It's it's interesting. The other thing that factors into this also, you're right. I, I personally, I agree. I think that the value of a Bitcoin will probably go up even more than we've seen uh, so far, as crazy as it is. But uh, the computation that I discussed, remember when I was talking about making guesses between one and a hundred, mm-hmm. would increase those to between one and a thousand if you guess too quickly, or one ten thousand if you get still guess too quickly. The same concept applies to mining. If the mining becomes too easy, in other words, if uh, the the answers start showing up quicker than the intended 10 minutes, then the algorithm includes a facility where the where the calculation is made more difficult. Uh, so that basically all these computers now suddenly have to go back to working harder so that they're all working uh, you know at um, you know to, to basically provide answers at around 10 percent. Yeah, at around 10 minutes. If you, for example, double the number of machines, so you actually just provide 51% of the machines, you have uh, doubled or halved, I should say, the amount of time that it would theoretically take on average to guess the number correctly. Uh, But the next increment of Bitcoin's algorithm would then basically double the amount of time. Uh, So there's kind of a race there, I suppose, if you are able to throw a lot of hardware at things quickly, uh, but specifically when it comes to hardware, we're talking a, a you know a uh, um, not a, a, an exponential progression, right? Uh, you're having to double the amount of hardware or the computing capability to be more accurate uh, in order to uh, you know, account for or to overcome the doubling of the calculation requirement. And to get just real nerdy for a minute, the calculation requirement is really kind of simple. Uh, the hash that gets produced has to have a certain number of leading zeros. And the make it harder part is that they simply increase the number of leading zeros by one. Hmm. So originally, I think it was like six. It had to, you know, the, the hash value had to begin with six zeros. And okay, great. That's however many you know thousands of hashes would be required before you statistically were able to get a number that came out that way. But then it doubled and doubled again and doubled again. So now I think it's like 15 or 16 or some, some large number of zeros. If you take a look at the hashes, which you can, by the way, anybody can see the blockchain, uh, then the, the, you'll see that every hash begins with this incredibly long string of zeros. That's the calculation at work. That, because you cannot actually architect your your hash generation to target any specific value or any specific value calculation, you're just calculating over and over again until you happen to land on a value that begins with the correct number of zeros. I I personally, I just find that both fascinating from from a mathematical point of view, but also pretty ingenious because it is a very, very simple technique. So I mentioned that anybody can examine a block at any time. Uh, you can go to uh, btc.com 
uh, for Bitcoin, and there are other uh, examiners for other public blockchains that will allow you to just poke around in what the blockchain contains. Every block, every transaction, you can see the hashes, you can see the numbers, you can see the, the links to the previous blocks. It's all public. You can make a copy of the entire Bitcoin blockchain to your machine at any time. And yet it's still secure because of course it's all encrypted or at least the information that's being transacted is encrypted in a certain way. This is kind of interesting, and I'll, I'll, we'll get back to this because there's a, a very interesting aspect of, is it private or isn't it? We've talked a lot about in the past about how you, know, you can't find out who made a, uh, a Bitcoin transaction, but you can see that the transaction happened. And in fact, there are sites that will just show you the transactions happening in real time. I was watching it yesterday as I was preparing for this, and it was kind of fun to see just random Bitcoin transactions going by for you know a few bucks, you know a few hundred bucks. Then one would fly by at you know the current value of like 1.9 million. Uh, have no idea who did it, but you can see the transactions fly by. If you're at all interested in seeing any of this, the hashes that I've talked about, uh, the uh, the actual Bitcoin transactions, the blocks, and so forth, uh, btc.com is one, and I've got a link, I think, to a couple of others um, uh, that will include in the show notes that will allow you to examine the contents of the blockchain. So that is a super, super, super high-level idea of what a blockchain is. It is nothing more than data stored in blocks, linked to one another, and encoded in such a way that it is not feasible to make malicious changes to what's going on, and where everything that is going on is visible. So how does that relate to money? Well, we now need to look at a different concept, a concept that honestly took me a while to get my head around. It's funny. I have problems, you know, the, the, the concept of encryption and hashes and all this co computer kind of stuff. Yeah, I get that. No problem. But this concept of a ledger actually had me stumped for a while until I realized that actually a ledger is just a record of something happening. That's really all it is. Uh, the fact that uh, I purchased my house exists only because somewhere there's a document that says I purchased this house. Uh, the fact that uh, you know I paid for my YouTube TV subscription is nothing more than a ledger or an entry in a ledger somewhere, potentially multiple ledgers that say, uh, yep, this person gave this much money to that entity. And at the other end, there's another ledger that says, yep, I got this much money from that entity for this person. So a ledger is really nothing more than information. Well, what is data? Data is nothing more than information. So when you actually implement a cryptocurrency, all you're really doing is saying that this person got this many of something and you store that information on a blockchain. In a nutshell, that's really all a cryptocurrency is. It's a list of transactions stored on a blockchain. 
Now, in the case of Bitcoin, they started with a certain number of Bitcoins that were available at the time. They literally made Bitcoin uh, when they started it. And in fact, the mining process also creates some Bitcoin going forward as well. But there is an upper limit. Uh, and everything since then has been nothing more than transactions based on divvying up the amount of Bitcoin that are represented in the blockchain. There is no physical money. Those, those pictures of Bitcoin coins, those aren't real. There is no coin. It's a digital currency. It only exists because everybody using it agrees it exists. And when you think about it, the same is true for real money. We all use real money because we all agree that these funny pieces of paper or numbers in our online bank account have some meaning. If we didn't agree that they had meaning, then they would not have any value. The same is true for cryptocurrency. It's just nothing more than an agreement, a game that everybody plays that says, yep, that entry in that block of data means that I have $50,000 in one Bitcoin. It's really, really abstract. I mean, a lot of people have this wonderful view of money because they get to see these pieces of paper, not realizing that it is still an abstraction. It's nothing more than a concept. Uh, Bitcoin takes that to the next level. Or I should say cryptocurrency takes that to the next level where there literally is no physical anything. There's just bits on thousands of hard drives around the world. Now, I've talked a lot about Bitcoin specifically because it is the most common, most popular example of cryptocurrency and blockchain in use. But there are multiple, like probably, I don't know, maybe 100 different cryptocurrencies, maybe more, uh, that all serve uh, different needs, different, I guess. They're different currencies. And in each of their cases, they use different blockchains with some exceptions, as it turns out. But those different blockchains often exist for a variety of different reasons. For example, uh, I said that on average, a block can get added to the Bitcoin blockchain about every 10 minutes. Some of the other cryptocurrencies want to be able to add blocks faster th than that. They need to be able to process transactions faster than that. And even though a block can contain few thousand transactions, it still means that there's like this potential of a 10 minute lag between the time you submit your transaction and it actually happening. Uh, so some of the other cryptocurrencies might adjust or use different techniques for some of the algorithms to validate the blocks. The, the mining might be different. Uh, the, the, the requirements uh, for actually adding something to the block might be different in a way such that they can happen more quickly. Another one is that they are actually making progress on various blockchains to not require this electric, this high electrical use. There is the, there's an agreement that, you know, yes, it uses a lot of electricity, but maybe we can come up with a different way that would allow all of these different miners to do something different that isn't as CPU as intensive, but is still as secure as the current uh, gaming theory-based approach of generating hashes. Now, as I understand it, uh, Ethereum, which as I said, is the second uh, most popular blockchain out there, 
is in the process of making some changes to how they actually do some of these things. There is a change planned for sometime next year that, as I understand it, directly addresses this uh, this hashing, with what's actually referred to as proof of work. But it's basically the, the thing that makes all these miners suck up all the electricity. Ethereum, because they are the second biggest one right now, uh, they are looking at a technique that would replace that with a different technique that I'm actually not familiar with. Uh, but it is, uh, it's a different, it's a, just a different approach to uh, making sure that the blockchain integrity is maintained while still uh, making it easier to, uh, to add things to it. So I mentioned uh, a moment ago, uh, privacy. Are they privacy? Are they private or not? Well, hang on a second. I'm talking a lot. The, when you make a, a transaction on one of these blockchains, you actually don't have a name. You're assigned a, a digital ID. That digital ID is something that um, is unique to you and its relevance, it's, it's what you need to actually access the information that's on your transactions on the blockchain. Now, like I said, it's cryptographically based and it's such a thing that you and only you should have access to this crypto, crypto key because it is essentially access to everything of yours on the blockchain. That has pros and cons, right? It's, it's one of those things where if somebody were to steal my crypto ID, they would have free reign to get everything off of my, you know, all of, all of my Bitcoin, for example, if that's the one we were talking about. And there's no recourse, right? There's no central authority to go to. We talked about that already. There's nobody to complain to. There's no customer support to say, hey, my ID was stolen. It's gone. Possession is not just nine-tenths of the law here. It is the law, which is one of the reasons that uh, cryptographic IDs or, or wallets, as they're often referred to, are so carefully carefully implemented and carefully, carefully maintained. And you've all, I'm sure, heard the story of people who have lost their crypto ID or their crypto wallet, or they've forgotten the password that unlocks their wallet. Again, there is no recourse. Their money, to the extent that it ever existed beyond Bitcoin, is gone. Uh, there's a story that I hear occasionally, I think I heard last on uh, the Smashing Security podcast of a gentleman in England who bought like $200 worth of Bitcoin multiple years ago. And now it would be worth like several million dollars. Unfortunately, he didn't think much of it at the time. And he threw away the computer that contained his wallet. And he is now petitioning the, uh, the city government that owns the landfill into which that computer was tossed for permission to go digging, to see if he can get that hard disk back so that he can recover his wallet and recover his millions of dollars of, of Bitcoin. Uh, he's even been doing things like offering to uh, uh, split the, the money with the local government, uh, if he finds it, uh, it's it's just 
you know, it's one of those really, really sad stories in the sense that, well, you didn't have a couple million dollars to begin with. You just bought a couple, couple hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin, but um, you know, whoops, don't do that. Mm. The, uh, when I, I did buy Bitcoin years ago, um, in fact, when I, o- when I opened my uh, coinbase.com is, is the, the quote unquote wallet that I use. It's an online service. Um, they gave you like a dollar's worth of Bitcoin to sign up. And I think I threw in $10 more. Um, and that's now worth like a couple thousand dollars, which is, which to me is just really incredible. Uh, but it, mir- it mirrors, you know, what we've seen in the Bitcoin value going. Right. And, and, and here's my only story I have to contribute to this. Sure. This is very sad. Many years ago, <laughs> I bought 10 Bitcoin. No, I do not have it now. <laughs> uh, uh, you could go and figure out what 10 Bitcoin is worth. This was uh, approximately when 10 Bitcoin, um, Bitcoin was worth about $1,000 a piece. Mm-hmm. And it was simply a, oh, instead of in my bank account, I really should put you know money somewhere where it earns interest or you know stocks or whatever. So I picked a few different places. And one of the things I did was, oh, I'm going to put 10, you know, buy 10 Bitcoins, sure. $10,000 worth of Bitcoin. And a few years after that, I happened to be buying and selling a house. You know, it is when you do that, you have to kind of have as much cash on hand as you can. So I was looking around any accounts where I had money and I saw that my Bitcoin account there, it had gone down and Bitcoins were only worth $500 a piece at the moment. So I sold my 10 Bitcoin for $5,000, a loss. <laughs> Uh, said, well, uh, you know, whatever, that was fun, you know. Yep. And I uh, did the real estate transaction. Now, after that real estate transaction was over, and, you know, you do all the stuff and get your new mortgage and your new place, you sell your old place, you know, everything's back to normal. The normal thing to do would be to take the money that you pulled out of any accounts and put them back in. But uh, at, as Bitcoin was still down around 500 bucks, I was like, well, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. So I did not repurchase my 10 Bitcoin. Then, and thus, I have zero Bitcoin now, <laughs> as it is more than fifty thousand dollars of Bitcoin. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. I know, and you're certainly not the only one. I mean, I know that the you know one of the initial transactions that they keep talking about was the guy who bought pizza with a Bitcoin, um, mm-hmm. and you know it was like if you if you do the math it, today, it's like a multi million dollar pizza. Um, I hope it was good, but. Uh, <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but yeah, that actually leads to one of the really interesting aspects about cryptocurrency in general, because we talk about it as currency. The intent, uh, I believe, was, and probably in many, many areas still is, that it be used as a true currency. So rather than having to you know, convert your Bitcoin to dollars or whatever the local currency of choice is, you could pay for things with Bitcoin. Uh, there would be, you know, like your mortgage lender would say, sure, we'll take those those 10 Bitcoin um, and just take them directly. That hasn't taken off the way that I think a lot of people were hoping it would. I suspect that some of the other cryptocurrencies are kind of, sort of trying to do that, trying to be the way, because the, the problem with Bitcoin, of course, is that it is so incredibly volatile. And that, you know, it, obviously each Bitcoin is worth quite a bit right now, but because of Bitcoin's volatility and because of the direction being generally quite a bit up, people are treating it not so much as a currency and more of as an asset. Uh, 
And certainly in the United States, that's how the IRS wants you to treat it. They are suggesting that it is an asset and needs to be taxed as an asset. And your, your, your tax accountant wants to know all of the transactions and you know all that kind of stuff because they're having to track exactly that, asset management. Uh, whether or not it will actually ever truly count as a currency remains to be seen. There are definitely some very interesting implications. And one of the reasons that a lot of cryptocurrency advocates are such strong advocates for cryptocurrency is that, as we started out by saying, there is no central bank. There isn't somebody to just print more money to solve a problem, like, say, the economic crisis you know, that, that resulted from a pandemic. Uh, one of the ways that the United States is, quote unquote, solving that problem is by printing more money, quite literally. And the, the downside of that, of course, is that that's going to have some long-term ramifications on the economy and the value of things and who knows what. Depending on who you talk to, it's either the right thing or a complete disaster uh, as such things go. But cryptocurrency is different. There's nobody to make more uh, outside of whatever the algorithm happens to uh, have encoded in it from the start. Like I said, Bitcoin started with a certain number of Bitcoin. The algorithm has a way where Bitcoin is periodically being added, but only to a limit. There is, in fact, a hard upper limit to the number of Bitcoin that will ever exist. That has some really interesting ramifications to how Bitcoin might be treated in the future and whether it becomes a more stable alternative to what they call fiat currencies, where you know basically we say it's worth a dollar because it's worth a dollar. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. Exactly how quickly that'll be is really, really unclear. But uh, the bottom line is that right now, I think a lot of the players in Bitcoin they're not buying and selling things. They are basically gambling, like you might gamble with any investment. Uh, they are uh, buying it with the intent that it, with the hopes that it's low and will go higher, or they're selling it with the idea that it's high and they want to you know capture whatever gains they've had. They're treating it like an investment, not a currency. Whether somebody's out there, uh, you know, actually buying things with it. I actually don't know of any place I could spend Bitcoin uh, with a couple of exceptions. Uh, there are, uh, I think, um, our, our friends at the uh, um, Internet Archive will take donations of Bitcoin. Uh, I think there are a couple. I think the Electronic Freedom Foundation will do the same. But in terms of, you know, I can't walk down to Taco Time and buy a burrito with Bitcoin. I still need to do dollars. And I think until we see wider adoption of that as an alternative currency and whether or not governments even allow that to happen uh, is the big thing that's holding back whether or not we'll ever truly see uh, any cryptocurrency be a true day-to-day spend-out-of-your-pocket kind of currency. Now, so we've talked about blockchain We've talked about ledgers, and we've talked about currency. Currency, Bitcoin in our example, is nothing more than a record in a ledger that says Leo has this percentage of a Bitcoin. Mm. 
and everybody agrees that the ledger is truth. And therefore, everybody agrees that Leo has this percentage of Bitcoin. And then based on, you know, buying and selling the usual things that happen in an open market, uh, that Bitcoin has a certain amount of value, not because it's backed by anything. It has that value only because people say it has that value. Uh, and again, not to get too terribly philosophical about it, but especially since the United States uh, stepped away from the gold standard uh, or silver standard, whatever it was, our dollars used to be backed by actual precious metal. Mm -hmm. They are not. A dollar is worth a dollar only because everybody says it's worth a dollar. We all agree that it's worth a dollar. There is nothing behind it that actually makes it um, that you could turn it into uh, that would be, you know, a, a everybody agrees is also a dollar's worth. It's very bizarre that way. Uh -huh. Anyway, so we've got all this agreement that, yep, okay, fine. Transactions have meaning. Uh, you know, digital currency is a thing. Now we get to start talking about NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Fungible is one of those words that I still have a hard time getting my brain around. Uh, I have to look it up every time. Uh, I'll have a, a link to fungibility in, at the, the Wikipedia article for fungibility. Uh, the, the example that they use is gold, I think. Um, if I have an ounce of gold and I exchange it with you for an ounce of gold, mm -hmm. it's still an ounce of gold, right? The, the, hmm. the fact that the ounce of gold I have in my hand is a different ounce of gold is actually fairly meaningless. Um, it's completely exchangeable for another ounce of gold and it has the same value, assuming they all both have the same properties. That's a fungible asset. You can exchange it for something um, that is the same and not have lost anything. A non-fungible asset is a truly one of a kind thing. Now, when I've heard a lot of NFT people talk about why NFTs are cool and why they're the future, yada, yada, the Mona Lisa keeps coming up because the first thing everybody talks about when they say, well, digital, I mean, can't you just make a copy of everything? I mean, we do it all the time. In fact, I advocate it. You should back up everything, uh, which is nothing more than a bit for bit identical copy. Isn't that like does that fly in the face of, of a non, you know, something that would you, you would actually pay money for? Um, the difference that, that, that the, the, the NFT people will point to is they use the Mona Lisa as their example. There is one and only one Mona Lisa. There are plenty of pictures. There are plenty of copies of it. There are plenty of of uh, photographs of it. Uh, there may even be some forgeries of it, uh, but they are all not the Mona Lisa. They are all inferior in some way uh, from an artistic point of view, but they are all different in some way. That's why I say when you start looking at digital assets, digital assets typically seem like they're identical in, in every way. If I have a, a JPEG of a picture, and I make a copy of it and give it to you, we both have the same thing. In fact, there is no distinction between which one is the original and which one is the copy. They are identical, and the distinction actually doesn't matter. Mm. 
With an NFT, what they do, as I understand it, is they someone says this, this particular JPEG is the original JPEG. It's the the one. And they, I believe they probably cryptographically sign it so that mm. nobody else can make an identical JPEG, an identical file that contains, even though it's the bit-for-bit bit compatible or, excuse me, the bit-for-bit bit identical picture, the signature cannot be forged. Mm. And that then gets entered into a blockchain, a ledger that says this thing that's represented by this information belongs to Leo. So, for example, Nyancat. Hmm. You all remember Nyancat. That was the gift from many years ago of uh, the Pop-Tart cat flying in space. And the artist who originally created Nyancat created a brand new one. Uh, probably a higher resolution given all the time that's passed. And he sold it. What does that mean? You and I and anybody who wants it can have a bit for bit identical copy of exactly what it is he just created. What he sold was an entry in a ledger that says so-and-so owns it. That's it. That's a non-fungible token. That entry in the ledger is the token. It can't be changed. It represents one and only one thing. And you're buying it. And everybody agrees you've bought it because they all agree that the blockchain is true, that the blockchain information is something that everybody agrees with. Uh, then the value then becomes, well, how important is it to you that you quote unquote own this new version of Nyancat. Mm. Apparently it was worth thousands of dollars to whoever bought it, which is kind of crazy. Uh, so whether NFTs right now, this is taking off in the sports realm dramatically. Uh, there, the, there are folks who are um, you know, just absolutely over the top about this stuff. It was, uh, uh, I think it's um, Gary Vaynerchuk who's, you know, serial internet entrepreneur, uh, you know, big, big guy in, in the space. We hear about him from all the time. He's also a big sports guy. And he's been promoting the heck out of various NFT-based transactions and sales where they're doing things like buying video clips, clips that you and I can have copies of, but we cannot buy, you know, we, 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 we are not the owner of that clip. The person who bought this token everybody agrees is the owner of that clip. Uh, the equivalent of digital baseball cards are apparently also heading off in that direction. Mm -hmm. um, again, you and I, we can all have bit for bit identical copies of the card, but there's only one person who's listed as the owner. And apparently that's valuable. Mm. I keep saying apparently that's valuable because it is very much totally, completely conceptual. It is all based on everybody agreeing that it has value. The only reason that I'm not really going, this is so stupid, is because ultimately our entire economy is based on people agreeing that things have value. So I'm not gonna be buying any NFTs anytime soon. 
right? That's that's just I just don't see that as being a long term strategy. Mm. However, however, there are interesting ramifications. There are interesting applications. I think that would potentially benefit from being treated as NFTs. For example, we'll come back to my house. Right now, there is a piece of paper somewhere in the bowels of you know my local county's administration building um, or a scan of a piece of paper in a data center somewhere that says, I own this house. That could be lost, it could be faked, it could be forged, it could be any number of different things, right? There are various variety of things that could happen to it, but everybody agrees that that piece of paper is the record for ownership of this particular piece of property. Sounds kind of like the same concept we just talked about with respect to Nyancat. Everybody agrees I own this house because everybody agrees that that's how we manage property ownership. If instead we manage property ownership through uh, something that is ultimately more secure, more redundant, more public, uh, more objective in that sense, then something like NFTs or transactions encoded in the blockchain are potentially a way of removing a lot of the, the, the problems uh, with things like ownership records and transactions. Mm-hmm. That's the direction I think that there's a lot of, of um, potential. I think there's some other really, really interesting things with respect to the blockchain and uh, basically anything that involves what we started out with, a ledger. Anything that is a list of transactions is a clear candidate for at least understanding whether or not there would be benefit from moving it to a blockchain type scenario. Blockchain isn't everything. It's not going to solve every problem in the world. But particularly when we're talking about very slowly moving to a global economy and Uh, not having all of these different jurisdictions maintaining their housing records in different ways, as my example has. Um, Maybe there's an opportunity there in the future. Whether we'll live to see it, no idea. No idea. Um, I do want to throw a couple of different resources out as being really interesting. I did do a, uh, uh, obviously I've been playing around a little bit with blockchain and blockchain technology. Uh, By playing around, I mean just reading more about it. There are a couple of things I wanted to point you at, point everyone at. One is there's a Udemy course, uh, Blockchain and Bitcoin Fundamentals, that I think would be really, really useful if this kind of stuff interests you at all. It's less about um, um, NFTs because those, even though they've been around for a while, they've really only hit the news hard the past couple of months. Um, But um, it it actually does a really good job of uh, showing, describing, uh, what basically much of what I've talked about here today, what you know, what the blockchain is, what hashes are. Um, it actually referenced a couple of interesting sites. There, the this is the course where I found out about BTC.com. There's a great site called DemoBlockchain.org that lets you actually set up an example kind of blockchain, and you get to see the hashes change when you change the data, and you get to see the linkage break as you change the data, and those kinds of things. So that's a, a very fun thing to play with. That's DemoBlockchain.org. Um, BTC.com I've talked about. 
uh, blockchain.com slash explorer includes some other blockchains. That's one where you can actually start looking at some of the other public blockchains uh, like you know Ethereum, which by the way, so there were a couple of things I mentioned a few moments ago. Um, Ethereum is doing more than just uh, cryptocurrency. Ethereum is a blockchain. Ether is a cryptocurrency that is implemented using the Ethereum blockchain. But it's not the only cryptocurrency that happens to be uh, implemented on Ethereum. And in fact, this whole concept of NFTs are what has really blown Ethereum up lately because NFTs, as I understand it, are also implemented on the Ethereum blockchain. Mm -hmm. So a blockchain can certainly have a lot more than money. It's for way more than just money. It's for anything that has a ledger of some sort. And Ethereum was architected from the beginning to be more than just uh, uh, just a cryptocurrency. Uh, let's see. What else have I missed? So I did want to point out blockchain.com explorer. You can see uh, those other cryptocurrencies playing around. Um, another cryptocurrency, I mentioned that you can trace uh, the transactions by the ID. So you can actually trace every transaction all the way back to the origin transaction on Bitcoin. That makes what they call it private-ish, right? As in it's private-ish. Uh, or you, know, you, you, it's almost impossible to take that token and turn it into a real person, but you can at least see the transactions. Some of the other uh, blockchains, specifically uh, Monero is the one we keep hearing about lately, is being used by uh, less scrupulous people. And one of its advantages is apparently it's not public. You can't see all of the transactions um, unless you're actually running the uh, the software that runs it. So there's, there's various types, various problems go that are being solved by them all. But um, that uh, that is blockchain in about an hour. Yeah. That was pretty good. <laughs> I uh, I do have some questions, but go for I'm, it. Please do. Please. Well, do. okay. So when you're talking about digital artwork as an non fungible token, yes, is the are the is the actual data in the digital artwork stored in the blockchain? I believe that it can be. Um, I'm not some sure. Some of it's big. It is. Yeah, sure. Some of it is big, but Video I think blockchains are, are able to handle that. But what's more, I think what's more valuable, mm. or more practical, I should say, is to create, have the author of the work mm -hmm. create a digital signature and then have that digital signature be placed yeah. on the blockchain. That makes me, you know, I, I mean, I don't, you might not have the answers to this, but, you know, when talking about, you know, obviously when you have real estate, because I know there is real estate, maybe not in the United States, but in other parts of the world that is assigned by blockchain, you know, mm -hmm. the ownership of it is. And obviously the real estate isn't physically in the blockchain. It's a, it's a physical thing, right? but you can, you have a location for it. You know, you could define mm -hmm. a square and a piece of land by with four points and say, and put that data in the blockchain and say the square between these four points is owned by, you know, whoever owns this piece of the blockchain. Yep. Um, that makes sense. However, when you're talking about digital works, you can't do that. You can't. You are, you are, you are. Think about it. What you just yeah. said about property, right? Yeah. You have recorded information. 
that describes the property. Describes the property. So, so what is a picture? The, but a description of a picture, right? It's a bunch yeah, of zeros and ones that that describe. But a picture. then I don't know. The, so if it's Nyan Cat, you know, if I say the description is a high resolution, uh, you know, animation of Nyan Cat created in twenty twenty one, you could say, okay, great. And then somebody comes up and produces. Here's two things that fit that description. You know, here, this right. is a digital, you know, and so which one exactly. do I own? Which, which is why I, I believe that it's cryptographically signed. So what you are, what you are purchasing, so to speak, is not Nyancat necessarily, but yeah. a token that represents the Nyancat that you've purchased. So you'd be able to analyze those two copies of things and take that signature and say, this one's got that signature embedded in there. This one does not. Wouldn't even necessarily have to be embedded in there. It would just be in the possession of, say, the owner. Position it. So they would look at the bits in each digital copy of it and say, this one, it, you know, the signature matches the bits that are in there. This one does not. Therefore, you own this one. Right. Or, or you know, you have a digital ID of your own. And there's nothing more that that, that says, uh, you know, here th this Nyan cat, as described by hell, maybe this SHA two fifty six hash, yeah, is owned by this digital ID, which only you can okay. provide because it's okay. your digital ID, and therefore oh. that's you know the, the it actually the okay. picture itself is never involved, right? Just like the property itself is never involved. The concepts are involved. The piece of paper that has my, um, you know, the GPS coordinates of my of my tract of land is involved, but that's a representation of my land. Similarly, that SHA two fifty six hash of Nyancat is a representation of of Nyancat, and that's what gets stored in the blockchain along with your digital ID. It's yeah, it's it's I, I yes, there's a leap, absolutely, <laughs> there's a leap for this. I mean, it just seems I don't know. It, it, I mean, I guess if it's a hash involved, I, hmm. well, okay. My next question, sure. And this is what I I I try to do research on this to find out. I went to one of the places where NFTs are sold. Okay. And go on, and they're just filled with crazy artwork, yep. <laughs> animations, pictures, videos, yep. all sorts of things. Anybody can create an NFT. And anybody can create one. Uh, but most of the ones I saw, you know, they, I couldn't find a good way to find, like, is there any here that, you know, they're worth three cents that, you know, somebody like me just stuck one on there? Um, most of the ones I saw were actually, you know, artists that had bios and had histories of creating artwork. And right. here's this thing they've created, and it's right now selling for $2,000 or whatever. Sure. And I was like, okay, so, okay, here's a piece of artwork. Now, if I buy that, I could go in right now and actually th these were, I think, auctions or something, or maybe, I don't know. But if I went and bought one, spent $2,000 and bought one, what am I getting exactly in terms of buying it? I thought if I went and selected one, then I could actually dig down and say, as the owner, these are the rights that you have over the property. Just like when you buy a piece of land sure, and sure. say, hey, I bought a piece of land in Washington state. I'm going to drill to the center of the earth. Yep. <laughs> you know, they would go and say, no, no, you can't do that with your land. Well, I'm going to build a tower up into the sky. Well, no, you can't do that with your land. You know, there's certain things, I mean, even water rights here in Colorado, you only have certain water rights on your property. Even right. a house in the city has certain water rights, right? So I thought, well, what are the rights I have to, if I bought a piece of digital artwork as a developer, I thought, can I put that in a game? Can I put that on a site? Can I create posters of that artwork and sell them 
what can I do? And sure. you know what? I couldn't find an answer. I couldn't find any information there yep. based on all the way up to the point of saying, yes, I want to buy this thing that told me what right do I actually have here as the so-called owner of this digital property? Do you have any idea? I do not. I do not. I have no idea. And I think that that's that's a reflection of just how um, how new all yeah. of this is. Because like you, right? If I would think that buying a piece of art would give me basically full ownership rights. I'm the owner and you're not. And I could do yeah. whatever I want with it, but it's certainly not clear. I'm not and, sure it is. Yeah. And and what happens if, let's say you do buy one of these pieces of art mm -hmm. and you do put it in one of your games and now the original artist objects. Right. What are their recourses? Where do they go? Who do they talk to? Uh, who do they sue? Is there law around this? Of course oh, not. We're, right. you, know, you and I are sitting here being very technically adept and we're having trouble getting our brains around this. Can you imagine if this goes to the general public court? Well, yeah, and it's my feeling is that the courts recognize copyright and these pieces of artworks are copywritten by nature in the United States. Everything you create is copywritten actually. Right. Um, or copyrighted, I should say, is the correct. Yeah. But uh, so the the thing is, is that I would have expected to find that as the owner of this token, <laughs> you know, you now will get the copyright. Yes. Uh, to this, or a license, perhaps, to the copyright, mm -hmm. which is another way to go. Uh, I couldn't find that information. And I don't know what would happen. I just know that if I spent two thousand dollars, put it in a game, and then the creator of it or the copyright holder would take me to court, my token would be worth nothing. Right. Yep. <laughs> it would be the copyright um, that they would sue me over and stuff. So anyway, I couldn't find this information. And one I don't of think the, it exists. I just don't. Well, that's 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 disturbing yes. because if the whole idea, you know, if the, the whole idea is, hey, this is non-fungible tokens and there's a fringe group here saying, let's use this for artwork, then I'd say, oh, okay, it's yet to be figured out. But it's not the fringe. It's like non-fungible tokens. And the main thing we're going to do here in March of 2021 is use this for our work. And there's going to be all the sites that I, you know, I would think that this would be better figured out and I couldn't find an answer. Um, and I tried to figure out, of course, you know, the reason this is a big story is people are spending big money on yes. this stuff. Oh, it's Some incredible. of the stuff I've heard, you know, artists that are creating things. Uh, I found one artist that was creating a digital animation of, uh, you know, like a, it was a samurai warrior or something like walking through a space. And there was all this different stuff going on. Um, for instance, uh, there was, uh, you know, different suits of armor left and right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they said, okay, I'm selling a thousand of these, but each one is unique. So in other words, the suits of armor and the colors and the, all that stuff, you're getting a unique version mm -hmm. of this piece of artwork. And, okay, that's interesting. I saw, People selling video clips, like the some of that sports stuff is like, right. here's a video clip of so-and-so dunking basketball or whatever. Um, I saw just various different creations like that. Um, why are people spending tons of money on this? And my theory is, <laughs> you know, as you said, things are worth whatever everybody agrees they're worth, right? And the market will tell. And if somebody puts something up there and there's a bunch of people that want it, it's going to drive up the price and it's going to cost you $2,000 or $200,000 to get it. If I put something up there that was just, you know, a scribble on, you know, on a digital tablet or whatever, it would sell for five cents or whatever, nothing. No, it's an original Rosenzweig. Come on. Yeah, original. I don't know. So... <laughs> 
so the thing is, is that, you know, the, the price is determined by that. But the reason I think the prices are so high now, this is my theory, is uh, uh, FOMO, fear yep. of missing out. Yep. Um, I think what has happened recently is a couple of things. First of all, you know, the stock market has been going up for the last 20 years. Um, you know, especially with internet stuff since the beginning of the internet, the first internet bubble, people have had FOMO because you, you know, you hear stories of your friends buying Yahoo stock or whatever it is. And, oh, and you think, oh, you know, I thought about that. I thought about buying that stock. I thought about buying Google or whatever. And, but you don't. So that's been going on for a while. And then on on top of that, you had Bitcoin, which keeps doing it over and over again. Every few years, it jumps, takes a huge leap and People, you know, to uh, have FOMO because, like the stories I had, you know, it's like, why didn't I hold on to those ten Bitcoin or whatever, or why when Bitcoin was a dollar right. and people were talking about it in a, a meetup group that I went to, and we were all talking about this blockchain stuff and what is Bitcoin, and it was a dollar, and I looked at it in a wallet and said, oh, a dollar, maybe I should just buy a hundred of these just to you know, just to have it and say I'm participating in this, and I didn't, you know, so there's that. And that's pretty recent. This, you know, Bitcoin's got a fresh new, you know, high that it's on. And then add to that, GameStop. You know, you have <laughs> right. this thing where right. you have basically what is a, you know, a bunch of people recognize that there's a flaw in the market based on shorts. And if you can identify which companies are massively shorted, then you could do this thing where if you convince a bunch of people to buy, you can all make a ton of money. And you can screw over a lot of hedge funds. Yes. Which <laughs> um, I think was so, also part of the motivation there too. Yeah, it definitely. It was, a, it was the main part of the motivation. But the, the thing is, is that, uh, you know, that was, that was the kind of thing that was out there for a year. It wasn't even like you had to notice people were actually actively telling you if you were online, buy GameStop, buy AMC and buy these, you know, other right. stocks. Right. So you had to actively say, no, thank you. <laughs> you know, uh, somebody's telling me I should be buying GameStop, but I'm not going to do it. And then, you know, that of course went up, you know, 10, 20, hundred times or whatever it was. Right. So now you're fresh off all, all that. And what's the next thing to come around? NFTs. Right. Yep. So a lot of people that said, oh, I missed out on GameStop. I missed out on Bitcoin. I missed out on all these internet stocks. I'm not missing out this time. $16,000 for, for a gift. Yes. I'll buy that. That's my, that's go. Oh, that's going to be big. You wait. So- <laughs> Here's my, here's my take on it. My, my bottom line for, like I said, Bitcoin, yeah, you know, there's a cryptocurrency in our future, I'm sure. Whether it's Bitcoin or not is unclear. Um, but it stands the best chance of any, I suppose. NFTs, personally, I don't see this artwork-based stuff going, lasting the long term. It's certainly not the way it's been lasting. Um, I know that artists are looking for ways to get paid for their work. And I think that's why a lot of them are embracing NFTs as a potential way of doing that. Whether or not it lasts, I couldn't say I'm skeptical. But I do think that the concept, at least, probably has a place in our more traditional infrastructure if we can get the appropriate players to agree. Remember, it only works if everybody agrees. so anyway, that was really long. I, I'm going to suggest we we skip our school cool segment for this week, yes, um, and just go ahead and wrap it up with some blatant self promotion. 
Um, mine is what's the best two-factor authentication option? It's askleo.com slash 130305. It is a common, common question since we're pushing two-factor authentication so hard. Uh, Gary, did you have something? Yeah, I've got uh, one on, um, you know, you can create these shortcuts on your iPhone, basically little automations to do things. And what a lot of people don't realize is you could automatically have a shortcut run when you launch an app and when you quit an app. So if you like, like one set of screen settings for when you're running a specific app, you can actually have that. You can have it automatically change the settings in your iPhone when you launch an app and then automatically change them back when you leave the app. Which is kind of neat and has lots of use. So I, I'll uh, put a link for that. And there we go. I wish my Android did that. All righty. That is a wrap. The show notes for this week are over at tehpodcast.com slash teh129. If you've got a comment or a question for us, especially about all this crypto stuff, as you could tell, I find it kind of interesting, <laughs> fascinating. I got excited. What can I say? Um, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at The TEH Podcast or leave a comment on the show notes page. As always, thank you for listening, and we will see you again here next week. Take care. Bye.